And thank you very much. <laughs> well, um, so I've got 20 minutes to uh, discuss the entire field of uh, the philosophical discipline of ethics. So this will be a whistle-stop tour, and I've tried to have a little bit of peek ahead at the programme and uh, say some things that might uh, be built upon uh, later on uh, in our sessions together as well. Um, let me try and distinguish for you several general sort of areas that philosophers divide thinking about ethics uh, into. Uh, first, uh, and a big area, is called uh, meta Ethics, a sort of philosophy of doing philosophy about ethics, as it were. Uh, it's where you consider questions like, well, what is goodness? What does it mean to say that something is good? What sort of status in reality does goodness have, if any? Um, how do we know what is the good? Um, can we know what is the good or the bad? Um, which uh, normative ethic, and I'll come back to this term in a moment, is best, and so on. Uh, I'm not going to say very much in this talk about that area. I think Graham in his talk is going to touch on some of that. And last term we had a very good talk from uh, Matt on Is It All Relative as well that you can look up on the, uh, the audio from last term. Then when it comes to, to ethics proper, uh, applied ethics, that's really talking about, well... What answer were we going to give to particular ethical questions? So, should we turn off the life support machine or not? That's an applied ethical question to which you want a yes or no kind of answer. Um, that's one of those ethical questions, like many, where you can't actually avoid going for an answer. There are situations in life, aren't there, where however complicated a situation may be and however much you may want to kind of sit on the fence, practically speaking, you can't. By doing nothing in the situation, you are in effect choosing to do something. So if you say, oh, that's too hard a decision, I can't make it, I don't know, I, I, I can't make a decision, I'm not going to do anything, you are deciding to keep the life support machine on which might be the wrong choice, you know. Um, there are situations where you can't but make some kind of decision. Uh, and then normative ethics, which I mentioned uh, a little while ago, uh, thinking about norms or, or rules, uh, ways of deciding what answer you're going to give to an applied ethical uh, <laughs> dilemma. And then... Uh, Undergirding this are what I've called here relevant philosophical issues. Philosophical issues that are not directly ethical, as it were, would be the sort of issues that you would study in, say, other areas of philosophy, but which have an impact on your ethical thinking. And I'll give some illustrations of that a little later on in the talk. So there are these sort of areas that we divide it up into meta-ethics, what is right and wrong and how do we know and all that, Applied ethics, I actually want an answer. Normative ethics, how am I going to arrive at an answer? An answer and relevant philosophical issues that impact your thinking in these areas. Now, although there's some overlap here, you could say that normative ethics, this area of, of, of trying to construct some sort of system of rules, or at least rules of thumb by which you make ethical choices, uh, generally falls under 
one of these kind of categories. There are action-centered theories. Uh, they're technically called deontological. It's one of these great long philosophical words uh, which means something very simple. Um, action-centered or rule-based. Uh, it's uh, where you're usually thinking in terms of ethical systems about what your duty is. You say, well, you know, how I go about choosing what to do in this situation is I ask what, what, I, what I ought to do. What is my duty here? Um, you know, uh, to think of something like the Ten Commandments in a Christian context. That's a, a deontological set of rules that you follow. And you think to yourself, you know, should I commit adultery? Let me go and look at the list. Do not commit adultery. All right. Okay. I, don't, I won't do that then. You know. Um, outcome centered normative ethics, often called consequentialist because it's about the, the consequences of your actions and trying to judge what action to make by trying to judge the, the value or the, um, some sort of uh, value of some kind attached to the consequence of your actions, uh, be that in terms of um, creating the greatest happiness for the greatest number as in utilitarianism, or be that in terms of creating the greatest amount of happiness for me, in terms of um, hedonism or whatever. And finally, what you might call agent-centred theories. This often comes under the bracket of virtue theory, goes back to Aristotle, uh, particularly in the classical world, but I think as well it's very biblically uh, rooted uh, theory, uh, where you're concerned more with uh, character um, I should do that, that kind of thing which a person of a certain character would do. I should develop certain character traits. So I'm, I'm seeking to make myself into an honest person. And that will mean that in a situation, um, I probably won't lie to someone unless I've got a very good reason not to. Rather than I don't lie to them because I look at the list of rules and it says, you know, do not lie or whatever. It's more to do with it sort of welling up naturally from within the character that one's aiming at developing. So it's a sort of um, agent-centred and sort of goal-centred. We're aiming to become a certain kind of person. Let's um, start back with deontological ethics. I think uh, Ten Commandments, but also think of the, um, the well-known post of the rules at the swimming pool. Um, I'm a bit of a contrarian character. Those of you who know me may know this about me. I tend to go to swimming pools... And look at the list of rules, you know, no, uh, no running, pushing, aerobics or gymnastics, no shouting, no ducking, no petting, no bombing, no swimming in the diving area, and no smoking. So I think, well, it's fine then for me to jog around the swimming pool. <laughs> they don't mind me jogging. You see, the trouble with any list is that lists are very easily sort of circumvented. They seem to be inadequate to covering all of the possibilities because there are so many possibilities and the list soon becomes very, very unwieldy. Um, you can focus uh, more on the letter of the law than the spirit of the law, as it were. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says, uh, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Of course, there are situations where it's useful to have lists of rules. 
There's nothing wrong with lists of rules, as it were. I don't think as a Christian you want to say there's anything wrong with the Ten Commandments. But you do kind of want to say in the light of the New Covenant that it's not sufficient, it's not adequate, it's not really getting at the, the heart of the issue. Indeed, Jesus, um, interestingly, boils down the Ten Commandments to the two and says, well, really, all of these lists of rules that you can make are spinning out of, are, are sort of byproducts of what's more at the heart of the issue here. He replies, uh, Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So you could, in principle, spin off the right rules, as it were, describing what the right action to do in any situation is off the basis of the heart of the matter here. You're just never going to have enough time to write them all down for every particular circumstance and situation you could come across. You could say ethics is grounded from a Christian viewpoint in the character of God. This is 1 John 4, 7-9. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love this is how God showed his love among us, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him putting on the character of Christ so you might want to argue that a sort of deontological approach to ethics and a virtue ethics approach to ethics uh, meet in the character of God Indeed, you might say the Christ-like, the virtuous person will fulfil their moral duties with due regard to the foreseeable consequences of their actions, particularly how those actions contribute to the formation of a virtuous character. So, Perhaps these different sort of ways of looking at ethics are sort of resolvable, um, though we're sort of putting the virtue of character, God's character at the centre, our character, but then there's no conflict between that approach and a deontological approach and even thinking about consequences of one's actions. As uh, Christian philosopher Garrett J. DeVis writes in his book, Doing Philosophy as a Christian, from the perspective of a Christian worldview, virtue ethics is the most viable theory of morality. Virtue theory is not exclusive of consequentialist or deontological considerations. Virtue theory, in focusing on the development of character marked by dispositions to virtuous behaviour, accords supremely with the Bible's emphasis on continued growth in holiness and responsibility for motives as well as actions and consequences. You know, it's not just the person who commits adultery who's guilty of breaking the law. It's the person who looks at a woman and thinks to himself, whoa, I'm going to commit adultery with her. How can I go about it? But they just, you know, they're frustrated because, I don't know, she gets run over by a bus before they can actually commit adultery with her. You know, that doesn't mean that they're scot-free and they haven't broken the spirit of the law. 
this ties in very nicely with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, for example, a passage all about developing the virtues within the Christian life as one follows Christ. Talking about the virtues of divine love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's not a... You could write out a list of, if you're going to be a good person, then you ought to rejoice with the truth. There'd be nothing wrong with that. But if you're putting on Christ and trying to, to develop a character in one's following of Christ and the enablement of the Holy Spirit and so on, a character that naturally delights in the truth, one will end up fulfilling the deontological rules as second nature. We have a fallen nature and we're putting on a second nature. The second man, as Paul talks about Christ. This is perhaps the kind of thinking that lies behind St. Augustine's famous phrase, love God and do what you want. It's quite a nice normative ethic, isn't it? Love God and do what you want. That's not a, a license to go out and sin. Quite the opposite. is saying if you love, really love God, then anything you want will be subject to the character of God and your love of that character. So you will tend to want to do the things that God would want you to do because you love him. So I think the Bible sees no conflict between, say, deontology, Ten Commandments, and virtue theory. And my kind of image for this reconciliation um, is the, this lovely trellis here. You can think of, uh, of rule ethical systems as kind of providing you with a trellis that's shaping how you're growing your character in life. You say, what sort of character should I aim up, aim at? Well, a loving character that's like God's. Yeah, but what would a loving character that likes God, what is that really like? Because I'm, I'm, I don't have that character. I don't know that character from the inside out. Well, what am I aiming at? Well, a character that would naturally tend to always delight in the truth. So that's, you can write it out there, what you're aiming at, but you get there not by aiming at it, but by, by sort of being propelled towards it, as it were, from the inside out. Um, the trellis is very useful for growing your arboretum or whatever into the right shape that the gardener wants it to become. And once it's become that shape, once you've grown your bonsai tree into the shape that you want, you can take away the wire, you can take away the trellis, and it still has that character of its own accord. Uh, two books to recommend on this area. On the more theoretical side, Tom Wright's book, Virtue Reborn, is an excellent analysis of virtue ethics from a Christian viewpoint. And from a more practical point of view, uh, and a much easier read as well, uh, John Ortberg's The Life You've Always Wanted is a very good book uh, about um, the actual uh, sort of practice of Christian character formation of the spiritual disciplines, as they're called in the tradition. So The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg 
and Virtue Reborn by Tom Wright. Now, if I still have a little bit of time, say something about assessing normative ethics. Normative ethics can't be assessed by normative ethics without begging the question. For example, if you asked, why should we adopt a utilitarian normative ethic? The answer, well, because adopting utilitarianism would produce the greatest happiness for the greatest number, would be arguing in a circle, begging the question. A better, but maybe still inadequate answer would be, because adopting utilitarianism will lead you to make correct ethical choices more often than not. That may or may not be true, I don't think it is, but this is at least a non-circular argument. I see, while utilitarianism certainly gives intuitively correct arguments, uh, answers to many applied ethical dilemmas, it suffers from a lot of well-known problems as a normative ethics. Um, how long short-term should you consider consequences over on the... Um, what about minority rights? Can't they just be bulldozed in favour of the majority happiness? Um, don't motive and moral character count in ethics as well as consequences and so on? So when we're trying to assess these different normative theories, what we're actually doing is using our moral tr- intuitions about clear cases. If a normative ethic, like utilitarianism, seems trustworthy on the basis of our moral intuition in clear cases that might then lead us to lean on it in unclear cases to help us out of a tight spot. You know? But I think we start with intuitions like it's wrong to torture children for fun, and if we find a normative ethic that um, agrees with those intuitions, and then we come across a case where our intuitions are not clear, then it's sensible to lean on the, the normative ethic to help us make the decision. But if you ever come across a normative ethic that spat out the answer, yeah, it's, it's fine to torture small children just for the sheer fun of it, then what you should obviously do is think, well, that is a rubbish normative ethic. <laughs> You've got to not put the horse before the cart. Um, Immanuel Kant, in a highfalutin way, put forward a moral norm about treating people as, as ends in themselves rather than simply as means to an end. Um, I think Jesus said it much more powerfully when he said, love your neighbour as yourself. It's basically the same thing. But if you look at a situation, I haven't got time to play you the film clips, unfortunately. Um, The book or the film of um, Judy Picot's novel, My Sister's Keeper, which is about creating a a saviour sibling that will be genetically compatible with a child you already have in order to use her as a source of body parts. Um, You can empathise with both, both sides... But if you were applying Immanuel Kant's rule, never treat a person simply as a means to an end, you might think, well, that's fairly straightforward. You shouldn't create a saviour sibling because that's to treat a person as a tool, as a means to an end, rather than as an end in and of themselves. But then if you came to a situation such as dramatised in the film The Island, where there's a a medical company in the future, if you're rich enough, you can go to them, pay them to have yourself cloned, They'll keep your clone in a state of persistent vegetation so it never achieves consciousness. Uh, It never loves or hates or feels or plans for the future or anything. We'll just keep your clone on ice and then if you need a new liver because you've been drinking too much or whatever, don't worry, we'll just whip the 
liver out of your clone, stick it in you, because it'll be genetically compatible. You think, well, should I do something like that? And you might, off the top of your head, think, well, if I were applying Immanuel Kant's norm, I thought that was a good norm, I'd say, no, because you're just treating a person as a means to an end. But as one of the characters in that film says, they're not persons, because they're never conscious. They never feel, they never hate, they never love, they never plan for the future. What question do we need to answer before we can even think about applying an ethical norm like the one Immanuel Kant talks about, say, was the lawyer from The Simpsons, representing the teacher of the law here. Um, Who is my neighbour? It's still a very sensible and relevant question to ethics. In other words, what's the right way to define a person? In terms of what sort of things X can do, it's not a person because it doesn't think, feel, love, hate. Or in terms of what sort of thing X is. For example, X is a finite, naturally embodied, rational soul. Whether or not that soul is operational, doing something or at the moment, whatever. Do you define a person in terms of what you can do or what it is? Are those different things? So this kind of question about well, how do you define a person? What is a person? It's not a... You might think, well, that, that's for sort of philosophical anthropology. But it's a huge knock-on effect issue in terms of lots of ethical questions, particularly in medical uh, ethics, of course. Because what you think something is plays a huge role in how you think it's right to treat it. If I come up to this chair here and I give it a good old <coughs> kick... Does anyone in the room think I just did something immoral? Didn't kick it hard enough to break it, damage it. I did give it a pretty good kick. Did I do anything immoral? If I walk up to Matt here. (laughs) Okay, so you think there's some difference between the kind of thing the chair is and the kind of thing that Matt is that justifies that difference of reaction? Um, So arguments about, well, how do you define X? What is a person? Will have huge effects on lots of issues that we'll come on to later in the course, I think. There we go. Good. Thank you very much. That was a very nice introduction to the term's work. So we've got a few minutes to draw him out on any particular issues that perhaps passed your mind as he was talking Thank you, Professor. The the simple ways that some people claim to be making ethical decisions, it's the phrase, what would Jesus do? Yeah. So you see it with the protesters outside St. Paul, which is a kind of virtue-based ethics, I suppose. Yeah. But then the question comes back, well, what would Jesus do? And you get... Opposite views. That's right. What the same virtuous person would achieve. Yeah, yeah. T- two responses to the "What would Jesus do?" thing. First of all, sometimes Jesus would do a miracle, and I can't. So the answer may be different in terms of what what should I do and what would Jesus do. Um, but you get the the, the sort of um, example based virtue based ethic that it's going for. But as you say. I think this is why it's important that you can draw out or that you could kind of write down, as it were, 
the virtues that that character of Jesus exemplifies. Um, Now, whether you write them down in terms of a a list of do's and don'ts, or you write them down in terms of a description of someone's character, like we had that uh, from Corinthians about love is this, that, and the other, and it's not the other, um, it's useful to be able to sort of propositionalise what one's aiming at. Um, I, I guess, uh, on the other hand, it's also how, how acquainted with the character of Jesus are people. What, it, what is our source of access to the character of Jesus? I would say the answer to that are both A, historical, but B, personal experiential through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Christian theology. Um, so people may give very different answers to what would Jesus do in terms of how much they trust the historical evidence, how well acquainted they are with it, and from a Christian viewpoint, whether or not they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and truly seeking to be transformed by him or not. Um, so, it, 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 you know, it's on the right kind of track, as it were, but as you're, as you're intimating, I think it's a, it's a very kind of oversimplified pointer to the right track. Yeah. It's an attractive view and an influential one, though, isn't it? I was talking some years back to a senior lawyer in London, uh, one of the biggest London companies, uh, law, law firms, and he was just completely sober. He, he thought, you know, what's the problem about ethics? Don't, he didn't mm. want to discuss ethics because we just do what Jesus would do. Uh, yeah. Be a colossal sort of anti-intellectual yeah. statement. Yeah. Um, a, lo- a lot of times. We have diff- uh, this distinction I was making between going with, with clear cases and hard cases. And a lot of times the hard cases are brought up by situations that are, say, brought up by new technology, our new ability to do something that we couldn't do before or do something in a new way that we couldn't do it before. And that raises a new ethical dilemma for us. And, of course, that raises an ethical dilemma that Jesus never faced. You know? What is Jesus' view on in vitro fertilization? Well, they didn't have it in his day. So you can't just go to the, the text and say, well, how did Jesus react to the in vitro fertilization clinic in Capernaum? You know, um, what you have to do is you, you look for general principles, be that deontological or, or general virtues of character, and then you're trying to work out, well, how does this rule, this virtue, apply in this new situation? Um, and that can be tricky. Um, <laughs> To do, as we know from the fact that you know, even people with the best will in the world who share a lot in common in terms of worldview and theology and so on can come to different opinions, different answers to some of those tricky applied ethical questions. My lawyer friend obviously has a much easier approach than my medical background. I'd be to believe yeah. the technology thing. Mm. Well, is it possible that we have? define the boundaries in evangelical terminology between ethical generalization and specific personal revelation and guidance in specific situations. Mm, yeah. If in a morally equivalent situation, now I'm forced to ask, 
guidance. Yes. I don't. I haven't seen in your framework any place for spiritual guidance in the ethical, intellectual debate. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, and I think that I think that's fair comment because I was trying to sort of sketch out the general areas that philosophers divide ethical thinking up into, and then trying to make some bridges to Christian thought on that. But you're quite right that a further bridge that needs to be made is that one of the sort of specific circumstances that needs to be taken into account. Um, that means that the, the, the sort of deontological systems, are, are, you can never make them complicated enough to, to cover every situation. And part of the, the specific situation is um, particular guidance to a particular person in a particular situation. Now, that's not, that's not to buy into situationalism, which within philosophy is a sort of relativistic, um, there's, there's no right or wrong, there's just what you do in the particular situation kind of thing. Um, but that the, the, you know, the objectively right answer can be different in the same situation, given different people in the same situation. Um, it's not a trump card, is it? I mean, people often play that as a trump card. I think of some medical students who got married in their third year, I think, and um, they just believed that it was wrong to use contraception. Well, she then went into her house job, very pregnant, and I think had to work mm. doing a 120-hour week, yeah. up to 38 weeks of pregnancy. I mean, it was colossal, she pulled it off. Yeah. But the rest of us thought, that's there are other factors yeah. here. That's right. Um, Christian but, common sense needed to come into this. As to what yeah. Was, uh, That's what you're doing, really. It, it's, ethics can be tricky because you're trying to integrate a lot of different sources of knowledge or direction together in a coherent way to get a, an answer for you in your situation. Uh, and that includes, I would suggest, things like the rules, historical information about Jesus' character, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, generally particular guidance, um, how you answer a philosophical question like, well, how do you define a person? Um, you know. <laughs> and a proper view of consequentialism from the decision you, you take. That's right. So there's a lot to, to kind of take on board and to integrate, and that's why these can be difficult, tricky things. That doesn't mean we should abrogate our responsibility and just throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, it's difficult, well, we should just give up. <laughs> it means, gosh, this is difficult, we need to be seriously minded ab about this and do our best with the resources that we have to hand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>